Today's reading is Psalm 82. God stands in the divine assembly. He pronounces judgment among the gods. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Provide justice for the needy and the fatherless. Uphold the rights of the oppressed and the destitute. Rescue the poor and needy. Save them from the power of the wicked. They do not know or understand. They wander in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods. You are all sons of the Most High. However, you will die like humans and fall like any other ruler. Rise up, God. Judge the earth. For all the nations belong to you. The word of the Lord. Rise up, O God, judge the earth, for all the nations are your inheritance. The final words of the psalm this morning. And there's a bit of a um, uh, Jesse back from the pink thing behind you. Um, my mic is going to die. It was green before the service, I promise, um, but now it is red, um, and the power is fading. Um, that song we just sang, uh, You Are Good, You Are Good. Um, to confess, to say, um, to, to want Um, I had a friend once who asked me, he said, um, he didn't like contemporary music, so take that for what it is, but he was like, why are we always trying to confess that God is good? What I tried to explain to him is that throughout the ancient world, um, particularly the time of the Old Testament and the New Testament, it wasn't a given that your gods had to be good. Your gods could be mischievous, your gods could be evil, your gods could be um, more destructive towards humanity. They didn't have to be good gods. And so what Jews and what Christians found in looking at the world, despite its frustrations, its temptations towards destruction, its violence, um, often characterized, as we've heard in this series on the Psalms, by the waters, um, the waters that threaten things, um, they decided to say, in spite of that evidence, at the core of who God is, is goodness and righteousness. That then raises a question. What's going on in the world? How is it that there is this one thing we proclaim, that God is good, God has ordered creation rightly, and that we are to flourish in this way, but also then to say, um, to look at the cover of the New York Times, um, to check into some doom scrolling on your smartphone. How is that corresponding to this world that God made? 
And this gets into the questions of evil and all sorts of other things, but this is partially where this psalm today starts and stands. The God presides in the great assembly, calls of the other gods before him, um, and sort of um, scolds them in some ways. Um, that's sort of what this psalmist is imagining for us, is this idea in which how is God's righteousness still true along with what is going on in the world? Now, what's interesting about this psalm is that um, it, it, it exists in a very enchanted world, if you want to put it that way. Um, we've talked about Charles Taylor's book, The Secular Age, um, which is a massive tomb. There are many guides to reading it, but, but the question that Charles Taylor tries to ask in that book is, how is it um, 500 years ago, everybody sort of believed in God or deity, they weren't all Christians, but that was assumed, and to say that you were an atheist or agnostic would have been quite the shocking claim. To today, our world, to say that you believe in God, and not just believe in God, but have a robust sort of faith that says God cares about how, who I am and how I act in the world, and then to live that way, which I think was part of the challenge we talked last week with the Psalms, is, is the fool says in his heart there is no God, implying that, that you could say out loud there is a God, but you haven't placed that at the center of your being. How to live that way um, becomes completely understandable in the modern world that that might not be the case, that there is a God, and also how hard it is to live as if there is one. So what Taylor traces in the course of his book is several reasons for one of the reasons why that might be, but one of the things he argues um, quite clearly is that we now live in a disenchanted age, that all these things that had meaning, um, all these other things that sort of uh, enchanted the world have ceased to be. We have explanations for um, why everything happens. Um, you want to know about the tsunami, you can look up the National Weather Service and find out where there was an earthquake, this, that, and the other. And so we live in a severely disenchanted age. Um, because we think if you can explain it, therefore you know why it happened. Which is a weird thing, but that's the way we live. Um, uh, this psalm exists, the reason why it told you that long story about Charles Taylor, is this psalm exists in a very enchanted age. God for, calls forth all the other beings in the world and in the universe. He calls them force, uh, forth, as the psalmist sees them, to this divine council. Now this is foreign to us largely because um, uh, there's just one thing I want to say about the disenchanted age. If you want to, uh, here's an exact parable of, of sort of how this lives. Ryan um, took me to watch the rugby finals at the Springs in downtown Glenwood Springs. Um, and it was a glorious day because South Africa won and Ryan was happy, um, beating the All Blacks from New Zealand. But our bartender was this amazingly kind young woman, and she was wearing, um, now I'm not even, the, the board with the letters, the Ouija board? Is that what is, how you say it? A shirt with the Ouija board on it, which I thought was kind of weird, and me being who I am, I asked about it. And she said, well, I, I wanted to wear it because I thought it was scary. I was like, I think it, I mean, I don't mess with those things. Um, so I said, well, do you have one? Do you play with it? And she goes, no, I would never do that. Uh, I don't tempt those fates or powers or this, that, and the other. Um, and yet she's wearing a T-shirt with it directly on it on her chest. To, to think about what this disenchanted age means is that sort of divide. I could clothe myself and the things that I think are destructive. But somehow, if I don't welcome them into myself, they're foreign to me. 
Whereas in a pre-modern age, to walk by the temple where maybe they were using the Ouija board, you would almost think you had exposed yourself to it. That the powers there were active and real, and so much so that you would avoid those places. Today, we can wear it, but believe in it, but also think it has no effect on us. That's an example of what I think it means to live in a disenchanted age. What happens in the psalm is it believes in a very largely enchanted age. This brings us to that sort of thought about monotheism. Um, The Bible is radically monotheistic. There is one God who is over all and created all things and is this, and yet there are these weird other scenes, like the book of, uh, started the book of Job that we just preached through, where it opens with the heavenly council gathered together. And the Hasatan, the Satan, the accuser comes in and questions how God is governing the universe. And there's these other divine beings there, angelic. Um, in the book of um, uh, Kings, um, Yahweh is seen with a throne with all these other hosts and, and people surrounding him. In the book of Daniel, one comes with the appearance of a man to Daniel um, and sort of uh, tries to tell him that he's been trying to get there, but the king of Persia has been blocking his path. In the book of Deuteronomy, too, it's sort of alluded to that while Israel's God is the Lord who is the Lord of all lords, other nations have their own sort of demigods that sort of overlook them and see them. Um, This is a theme throughout the Bible, um, but it's not one that I think we focus on or hear much of. Part of this is because we, we th- at this point, have become sort of radical monotheists. All the other powers just aren't um, uh, not, th- not like, all the other powers aren't subpowers. They're not there at all. None of the other ones exist. Now, the New Testament has a tension with that, too. First, obviously, with the um, notion of, of evil being personified in the devil, the evil one, is this one. The book of Revelation picks up those themes as well. Um, and so you have sort of this expansive view within the biblical canon. Um, and there are times in which it becomes clear that these gods, these other things are non-existent, don't matter, are insignificant. There are other times where they're personified. Um, they seem like they're real. And there are other times where I think this is probably the best way to read it um, as a New Testament 21st century Christian is that their realness is testified to what people do with them. Their realness is testified to like that people do worship them. Maybe the gods aren't real, but there is in some sense a community of people who act like they're real. Um, And so this is how this works. Now, God calls these ones forth in in this psalm and um, scolds them in some way um, uh, for for not judging correctly. But but the thing I wanted to to sort of say about that is we have our own versions of these. Um, For instance, one I like to pick on often is not rugby, because we don't live in South Africa, um, but is uh, football. Calvin has this notion that, that the heart is a perpetual idol maker. We're always making idols. And I think it was Luther who said, every idol that is worth its salt demands human sacrifice. So several years ago, I read a story in Christianity Today about a couple that was getting married, and they had picked a day that Alabama football was at home. And their parents in the article were very clear 
that our daughter had made a grave error and we will not be going to her wedding because she knew Alabama was home that day. Every human idol worth its salt demands human sacrifice. If we think if God were calling forth the spirits of our age, real or not, you could have um, the disruptors um, come forth Republican and Democratic Party that are always trying to confuse and destroy people. We have technology companies that mainly exist just to get us sucked into our devices that have the gross domestic product of like mid-sized nations. Um, those things which want us to find um, lust or addiction or destruction in our world. And in another time, these would have been personified. You worship at the God of TikTok. You worship at the God of something else. And, and so the, the world has this way in which um, we flattened it. Uh, we can wear uh, the, the, the Ouija board t-shirt but think it doesn't affect us. But there are so many things throughout the modern world that have almost godlike powers over us. The New Testament would call these things principalities and powers. We live in a world of principalities and powers. And the New Testament notably has, has this idea that we live in a world of conflict. A conflict between one who intends harm for all of creation and one that's been invaded by Jesus Christ and the first fruits of that turning over have happened in his resurrection. So we exist in between those two poles, but this, as I've tried to say, is not native for us. We exist in the disenchanted world, and so that all these things can be sort of explained naturally. And yet sometimes, um, something wakes us up to it. Um, we see some sort of evil that doesn't get explained the way that we think it can. We see some sort of possession, I think, taking root in, in an ideology or something enacting in the world that we go, that is not the way it should be, but there's no rational explanation for this. Um, Carl Jung used the phrase, and I like this phrase a lot, that idea, uh, people don't have ideas, ideas have people. People don't have ideas. Ideas have people. When you look at a, a mass of people, uh, we're following Eugene Peterson's sort of version through this, but he said there are three enemies to the Christian soul, um, crowds, um, noise, and um, I forget the third one. But, but when we look at crowds in the modern world, we see a lot of, it doesn't seem like these people all woke up and came to this idea seems like an idea took root within them, uh, almost as something foreign. And so for us to read this psalm becomes a challenge because we don't imagine the world in this sort of way. But going back to what I also said about how this psalm is supposed to exist, is it's, it's, it is in some sense an answer to the question of how God's righteousness is true, and yet the world can live and be in such disorder. Um, the psalm opens with God presides in the great assemblies. He renders judgment among the gods. Before I go too far, um, Rachel read where this portion appears in the New Testament in John's gospel. The Pharisees come to Jesus and they say, how can you say that you are God or, or that you are a son of God um, uh, when we're not 
supposed to do that. And Jesus brings up this psalm, and he says, even your own scriptures say this. The Israelites at the time were tempted to read this more as them receiving the design word, that God, the sons of God, are the Israelites. There are really four different ways you could read this passage. I'm going with this idea that there are at least things we ascribe real power to that aren't God. Um, that's what my long defense at the front was. There are things that we ascribe real power to, almost God-like, but may not exist um, because of the radical monotheism we have throughout the scriptures or the principalities and powers or their evil. Um, you could also read it uh, a couple different ways, is that these are the leaders of the nations that are caused for us that often in the ancient Near East would consider themselves godlike. Um, or these are um, the nation's sort of demigods themselves um, that are sort of called forth. And then the Israelites sort of is that they are. The problem is, is that there's that reversal, which we'll get to this judgment that says, look, you were this way, but now you're going to be mortal. All those other things, if you are going to take that interpretation, don't go from deity to mortal. They're just mortal all the time. Um, if you ascribe it to people, if you demythologize, disenchant the psalm, yet that that move becomes complex you could read it allegorically but yeah anyways so jesus at his time is going with the the interpretation of the pharisees of this psalm it's not clear that that's jesus's interpretation of the psalm but we're going to try and read the psalm not so much within that context today um, but more within the context of it as this profession of faith in the world way of looking at the world somewhat differently um, so that's where we're, we're starting from with this is that God presides in the great assemblies he renders judgment among the gods that the grand Elohim is in the great assembly now here there is that notion that God is this one who's above all the other gods God is the one that is the one who calls the great assembly and renders judgment over it. So if you are going to read it in the other way, you have this idea still that, that Yahweh, the one, is the God above all gods, the one that has power in different ways. The psalm continues, How long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? Defend the weak and the fatherless, uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed, rescue the weak and needy, deliver them from the hand of the wicked. God's righteousness here is confronted with these other beings, or these leaders, whichever way you want to take it, that are not doing what they were meant to do. And it's not hard, I think, in the modern world. I mean, if you look at perhaps if, if this is personified nations, Nations are meant to comfort the weak and be there for the fatherless and to look for whom reality and the world is not working out for. And they'll often not be doing that. They'll often not be working in those ways. The judgment that God renders upon these gods is that the job that you had, that you're supposed to be defending those whom uh, are without, and without recourse. I mean, this is... Um, a lot of this is, we talked last week about how the poor are not a solution to be solved, but a people to become. This is why Jesus blesses the poor in spirit, this, that, and the other. Our notions of poverty, I think, are a little um, small. But here, um, this idea of God upholding these 
things, not defending the weak and the fatherless, upholding the poor and the oppressed, not rescuing the weak and needy, is not just um, that this is good to do, but these are people, if you look at all these words, um, things are not working for them. Um, The way in which you would have somebody defend for you, as a father would, isn't there. The way that you might have resources to navigate the world if you are poor isn't there. The oppressed somehow are finding themselves on the underside of things. So the idea isn't just to say you should do these things, but to look at the ways in which the world is sort of misformed towards other people. Um, the, The struggle for this, I think, for the Christian as we read this is these are big picture things. God is talking to other gods or nations or whatever you want to say. Um, for Christians, Jesus takes these sort of things and turns it into this art of neighborliness. To see who is next to you and near you and be for them in that way. I had two, or I think three different conversations this week that sort of ended with how frustrating neighbors are um, and how hard it is to love them. Um, one uh, Congregant lives to a, next door to a bipolar neighbor who thinks they own their parking um, and, and will confront and yell at people quite violently. Um, how do you love that neighbor is a real challenge. Um, how do you love in that context and place? Because often, if I say I love the oppressed person in Africa or China or in the Middle East, I don't know them. They don't frustrate me. They are not bipolar policing the parking on my block. They're not playing their music too loud so that I can't concentrate when I'm writing a sermon on Psalm 82. They're not um, disrupting your world. And so often, as Christians, I think we're tempted to say, you know, I could love the whole world, but it's the people really close to me that I can't stand. Um, it's actually from the Brothers Karamasov, a woman comes to Father Zozima with that exact request. Father Zozima, I have such compassion for everyone, and yet my children, they drive me up the wall, and I'd like to, to throttle them. Um, like, she had this, this notion then that, that compassion could be abstracted up to certain degrees, and it could never be for the person near you. What, what Christ does is he takes a teaching like this and says... Imagine you're on a road and you come to somebody who's beaten up and surrendered on the side of the road. You don't have a religious excuse, is what he says in the Good Samaritan, to go past them. But you're one to get down in the pit with them. Put yourself at risk, because in that world, um, people would fake being injured. Put your work self at risk. Get down off your hearse. Bandage them. Put oil on them. Put them on your donkey, take them to an inn, pay for them to stay within the inn, and then come back to settle the bill if it takes longer than you thought. One, that story is incredibly hard. Like, a person bloodied and wounded, you put them in your car. you put them on your donkey. Like, that, that story is one that I think is meant to be so aspirational for us. If you think being the Good Samaritan is easy, I don't think you've read the story enough. Um, the risk involved, the danger involved, the cost involved, the anointing, touching the bleeding person 
with your hands. It's not an easy way to be. And so as we look at this, this is the big picture one, and I think we're tempted to say, let's do the big picture justice thing, and that may be right for a time or may come in forms that it's right, but really what Jesus says is, look for the people broken on the road as you travel the roads of life. And they have a calling on you as you to be a neighbor to them, to neighbor them. Um, so often it's much easier to give money to some foreign cause or to sign a petition than it is to love the broken you pass on the roads of life. The psalm continues, these gods, they know nothing. They understand nothing. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. These ones at which, whom God has called forth, they, they have no common sense to be able to do this. They're failing at this ordering of the world. And, and what God um, proclaims here in this psalm is this idea in that when these things don't happen, the foundations of all that is are shaken. The world is tossed up in this. Um, and so God renders judgment upon them. I said you are gods. You're all sons of the Most High, but you will die like mere mortals. You will fall like every other ro ruler. This is the, um, the psalmist um, proclaiming what happens in the world that doesn't work, is that God is still there in God's righteousness, looks at all that is with failing that is godlike or God or evil or whatever it says, and proclaims the death of all of them. Proclaims the death of those things which bind and destroy, steal and kill, that can't bring about the justice that God has visioned in the world. So if you're following with the psalmist here, what the psalmist is envisioning is that future day in which God says, all of these are no more. They die like mortals. They will not have the final say the final word in creation and life. This is what God proclaims here is the death of all these other gods or the death sentence of all of them. Um, which is a grand teaching. I mean, it's something to think about is that all these other things that we can throw our lots with are assigned to death. Um, you know, and the... I had a lot of fun thinking of like the angel who does roll call for this um, and, and thinking like, you know, back, back when the psalm was written, he called forth witch doctors. Oh, now you just go by doctors, um, which is a sign of the medical industrial complex. All our hope is in that. Um, uh, Athena, this thing that builds idols in, in Ephesus, uh, calls forth that and it's, it's all, all of it starts with at which if the, the, it's social media. <laughs> like, it's all just starts, and the angel's like, okay, there's at this and at this, and this is getting quite out of control. Like, all of these have been absorbed into the world in quite different ways. And what happens here, what the psalmist sees God saying is that all these things will die. They will be no more. Um, if you get uh, ads for financial services, Charles Stanley... That one sounds like a person. Or Charles Schwab. Schwab. Charles Stanley's a pastor in Atlanta. I did not mean to put him in with that lot. 
Um, it's the father of Andy Stanley. Um, no, Charles Schwab uh, uh, or Merle Lynch or, or these sort of things, you know, um, they have not done what they were supposed to do, one, as having power and authority. They've taken advantage of people, so destruction and means. But there are also places we, where we project our hopes, where we project what we want. And what the Christian and the Israelite before this is welcomed into that these things will die like everything else. And so the psalmist ends with the hope of the people. This is, this is where the psalm shifts. This is not God speaking anymore as it's been in the other verses. It ends with, rise up, O God. Judge the earth, for all the nations are your inheritance. The psalmist, as he's told this, this sort of story, this way of looking at the world that is frustrating, ends with the assembly, with the people, calling forth, rise up and bring that day, O God. The last pastor I worked with in Oregon, he would often pray when he saw terrible things in the world, he would say, even now, which comes from the end of the book of Revelation, even now, come Lord Jesus. The Christian invited into this, uh, as Emily read that confession at the start of the service too, is that um, he will come to judge the living and the dead. Um, is able to see, and this is what I think the Spirit enables us to do, is able to see that these gods have experienced the first part of their death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What Jonathan read from us from the book of, of Corinthi- um, Colossians, um, uh, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing them over them by the cross. That was ahead, I think. Um, that, that Jesus, in what he did, triumphed over all of these at the cross. And so we're people who are given the inside story there in some ways. We're given the ability to see that what often looks like it rules the world, what often feels like it has the final say, will not be anymore. And it's the church that gets to announce that. Now, when we went through the book of Galatians, the the New Testament term evangelion, um, evangelical, as we would say it today, is really the announcement of good news from a battlefield far away. That's what it originally meant. As Christians, we get to go forth as people who announce this good news. Sorry, I went back. Rise up, O God, judge the nations, for all of this is your inheritance. Even now, come, Lord Jesus, as we see the world in its dysfunction and dismay and all these other things, that we're people who are given a foretaste to announce that that is coming to an end that we are the people who have blessed feet of good news to bring that. Um, And so that's, I think, where the psalm brings us for today. We'll end with the quote on the back of the bulletin um, that I think names this well. The resurrection of Jesus Christ reveals, it completes, it this proclamation of victory. We must not transmute the resurrection into a spiritual event. We must listen to it and let it tell us the story of how there was an empty grave, that new life beyond the grave did become visible. This man, snatched from death, is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. 
What was announced at the baptism in the Jordan now becomes an event and manifest. To those who know this, break between the old and the new is proclaimed. They still have a tiny stretch to run till it becomes visible that God and Jesus Christ has accomplished all for them. Through the cross and resurrection, the falling and the death of all those other gods and things and orders that bend towards destruction has been made complete. As he says, we have a tiny bit to run to see that day in which God stands over all. Let us pray. Rise up, O God. We, as your people, live in a world bound to decay and frustration in so many ways. And yet through this psalm, we are invited to see that you proclaim that those things will be no war. The old order of things will pass away. And through the resurrection and ministry of your son, those powers have begun to fall. Christ in Luke's gospel proclaims that I saw Satan fall like lightning as this news goes forth. God, stir within us to be the announcers of your kingdom. The arrival of this new age, this new event, in which all that looks like it has power stumbles around in darkness and is proclaimed mortal by you and experiences its deaths at your hands. Be with us now. We ask this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.